This morning I want to just draw you to a, your attention to a couple verses in Matthew's gospel. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me just give a small, small intro by saying the sermon that I'm preaching is a combination of sermons that I preached in my church in my country. I, I did so because in my country we're not allowed to openly proselytize. And so the question is, well, how will you grow a church then? And so this is my answer to that. And so when you think through these words, I think they're applicable to us here in America as well. But as you think through this and remember me, this is the, one of the chief prayer requests that my church would actually live out these verses and therefore the gospel would go forth. So let me read this passage for you. It's from Matthew chapter 5. Verses 13 to 18. Jesus preached, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us as your people to gather this morning to worship you, to pray to you, to give of our tithes and offerings to you, but now to hear your voice speak to us. We ask that you would open our ears, open our minds and our heart to hear your speaking, and that I would be removed and that the, the congregation would only hear you. We ask this for the glory of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let me give another sort of introduction put these verses in a little bit of context we know jesus is preaching what we call the sermon on the mount and this sermon starts with a series of beatitudes or blessings blessed are uh, are the poor in spirit and so on and each of these blessings they put forth if you will characteristics of a christian they are pointing what should be inside the christian and then the spiritual blessings that come from them as we walk with God. So just simply put, those beatitudes are the characteristics of a believer. They describe what a Christian is. I think these verses that I just read, they continue with that theme. They're describing what Christians are. Jesus says plainly, Christians are salt and light. There's no exception. There's no way we can say, I want the mercy of God. I, I want to see and to know God. I want to be a child of God. Those were some of the blessings that Christ pronounced earlier. And then say, but I don't want to be salt and light. That task is too difficult. The challenge is too hard. I want the blessings, but not the duty. And Christ says, that's impossible. And he says it quite emphatically. Christians are both salt and light. 
here in this world. There's no choosing. That is what we are. But I do think there's a change in these verses. These, uh, Jesus has pivoted from describing who we are to now he's teaching how that character should be seen. In other words, having shown us what we are, he goes now and tells us how we should act. The first idea I think we should see in these verses is that the Christian is not someone who lives in isolation from the world. We are to live in it. Christ sends us to it. We're not to retreat and to form some sort of holy community. That's the era of the monastic order, if you will, from church history. They tried to escape from the world. They separated themselves in order that the sinful tendencies would not affect them. And, of course, we know that did not work. As Jesus said, the problem's inside of us. Sin comes from the heart. Jesus said that it's out of the heart that evil ideas come. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. There was once a member of the church that said on the back, I can't read what you have on the back there, but as you were leaving the church, it says you're now entering your mission field. We come here to, to, to get restored, to get strengthened, and then we're sent out into, into the world to be a salt and a light. So the Christian, we are to be in the world, but now we bear this relationship with the world. But the question now is, what exactly is that relationship? And Jesus uses two metaphors that have been repeating. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Now, if we step back for a moment, these are not just a description of the Christian, but there's an implication of the world as well. It really stands when he says that you are the salt of the earth, the earth, and you're the light of the world. It's describing mankind. It's describing the non-believing world, if you will. And so what do we observe when we look at the world today? When you look out into our country, into our society, what do we see? I think it's quite plain. One way you could characterize the world today is that we have rewritten the rule book. There's no longer anything that's considered to be addictive or immoral or just simply wrong. The only bad thing that is said is something that restricts me in what I want to do. Tells me what I can do and what I cannot do. Something that destroys my entertainment. And so gone today are the virtues of duty or sacrifice and honor. And this is what's implied when Jesus then says that we are to be the salt of the earth. He's directly implying that there's a rottenness in the world in which we live. The philosophies that they follow. The desires of the people. There is a pollution. And it's destructive to everyone. And this is what the Bible has to say about the world. It's fallen, sinful, bad. Its tendencies are towards evil, to fighting, to vices. 
And so it's like meat that's been left out on the counter too long. It's rotting and it's being polluted. We know that the Bible is full of illustrations of this fact. You don't even need to leave the pages of Genesis to see this, to see the effect of sin on the world. Shortly after the first two children become adults, we have the first murder in Genesis 4. Two chapters later, because of the great immorality of the world, God decides to send the flood and destroy his creation. Three chapters later, we read about the debauchery of Noah and the shameful act of Ham. And the stories go on and on. The surprising idea for us as Christians living today should not be the state of the world and how sinful it is. Rather, it should be that we should be surprised that the world is not worse than it is. That all the immorality, all the evil philosophies are not greater than what they are right now. But it's because of this rottenness then that Christ calls Christians to be salt, if you will, to stem the tide of evil and point people to where there is deliverance and hope. How do we do so? Again, I think first we must notice that this particular charge, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. I could phrase it like a, a preacher of yesteryear did. Christian, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. That's the emphasis of this passage. And so the idea that we must see is that there is an essential character difference between us and the world. That has been the emphasis of the first 12 verses in which Christ is describing the character of the Christian. The Christian is somebody who is changed on the inside. And then that begins to affect his thoughts his dreams, his desires, even down to his actions and his words. He's no longer dead in transgressions, but he's been made alive. Paul writes he's a new creation. And so as the gospel penetrates us, we begin to not only just love God, but we begin to love his law. And we desire to glorify him by living it out. And this makes that complete difference from the world. Simply put, we are to be different. Salt is essentially different from meat it is to preserve. That was the main function back in those days. The salt was used to retard the pollution or or, or the, the, the meat from rotten. And it only works by being completely different. And so our Lord put it this way in the passage. If the salt has lost its flavor, if it's lost its saltiness, then it's not good for anything. It should be just thrown out and trampled by the feet. So unless we're clear about this, that we're to be completely different from the world, then we've not begun to correctly think about the Christian life. We are to be unique and outstanding. There's supposed to be something that marks us out and which is easy to be recognized. 
So whether it's the words we use, the habits we have, or even the activities we do not participate in, it is obvious that we are different. Maybe it's just the hope and the peace that we have of going through difficult circumstances. Or it's the joy that we show on our faces or the words of thankfulness that we share with others. We are distinct and peculiar. Let me share a prayer request. Pray for the youth of my church. Tell the story this way. In the old days, one of the most derogatory terms you could call somebody in my country was Baptist. Don't think Baptist, all right? Think Presbyterians. Because the Presbyterians were crazy. And so if you were an adult and you identified as a Presbyterian, as a follower of Jesus, then you could lose your job. Or if you kept your job, you weren't going to get pay raises. You weren't going to get promotions. You were done. For children, if they were coming from a Presbyterian family, they were oftentimes brought in front of the school in which the teacher then would try to psychologically manipulate them to recant the faith of their parents. They weren't going to college. Their careers would be cut short. So it was a risk to say you were different, that you were a follower of Jesus. Now, the times have changed. It's not like that in my country now, but still that mindset is there, especially with the youth. I just want to blend in and look like everybody else. One of the things I'm challenging the teenagers of my church is that they must be unique. They must be different. They must show themselves to be followers of Jesus. And it's hard for them. Much like I think it's hard today in this culture to say, I stand for Jesus. I will not participate in this, and I will be doing this. In my city, I think the, simple, the distinction should be simple. One of the first things I, I had to ask when I moved into my city was why, when cars parked in the parking spaces along the street, there was often somehow the license plate was covered. I moved during COVID, so quite often it was a COVID mask covering some of the numbers. In the wintertime, we have winter, we have snow, much like we have here. They would creative people would make a snowball and just pack it on the license plate. Or sometimes they have them magnetic so they could just quickly remove them and put them in the trunk. So I asked, what is going on here? Why are people covering their license plates? And then I was told it's an attempt to avoid paying the parking meter because there's a guy that comes around the city and takes pictures of the license plates and that's how you get fined. So in order to save 50 cents an hour, they're covering their license plates. Cars of BMWs, Mercedes, Porsches, trying to save 50 cents an hour. Or I remember getting on a bus, and for some reason, four young guys drew, drew my attention. When we got on together, the bus was crowded, and I watched these four guys, and I noticed that they were looking up and down the bus. And then they were sort of giving each other some high fives, some fist bumps. 
And I noticed why they were doing it. There was no conductor on the bus. So that meant in order to pay your bus fare, you'd have to actually go to the driver and pay them the, him the money. But because it was crowded, they didn't have to do that. They could ride the bus for free and get off on their stop, saving 10 cents. I start with these sort of smaller, sort of, if you will, benign stories. But there's a point there in the, the rottenness, the evil, the trying to get away with things. And Christ calls us to be salt and light, to do what is good and right and proper. I could continue with stories that are much, much more bigger and more serious that people think it's okay to do because they're only cheating some non-entity, non-person, uh, non the government, so they don't pay their taxes. They file for bankruptcy to avoid paying loans that they've taken. It's very common in my country to, for people just to devise ways to cheat other people, to divorce your spouse for no reason have ch children out of wedlock or have an abortion for convenience. The trouble is I know believers there who think it's okay to lie, cheat, and steal as long as you don't get caught. And so Christ calls us to be salt, to do what is good and proper, to be a guard, to be a stop against the rot. As I've said, this is the main function of salt in those days, was to retard the spoiling of food, to stop the decay. And we do so by doing what is right and good. Loving God's law and attempting to fulfill it. So I challenge you, examine yourselves down to the smallest things that you don't think are important. With the question, are you different than the worldly people that live around you? I got to move on to the next metaphor. Not only are we the salt of the earth, but Christ says we are the light of the world. We can think about it this way. Salt has sort of a negative connotation. It's what we do in the face of evil. But light Light is more positive. It, it, it's what we're proclaiming to the world around us. It points that there is a better way. It gives hope. It gives encouragement. I think it answers the questions of purpose and meaning, of identity and belonging. These questions that people ask today. Who am I? Where do I belong and what is my purpose? And Jesus is saying that we can help people answer those questions by being light of the world. Light versus darkness, it's, it's a common theme, it's a common metaphor used throughout scripture, but it's especially fitting for the world we live in today. Consider two examples from what I would say are two of today's leading philosophers. Maybe I'm outdated, these are from 10 years ago, but the first one is Richard Dawkins. He says this, the universe is made up of electrons and selfish genes. Such a universe is neither good nor bad in intention. Therefore, we should expect there is no design, no purpose, get this, no evil and no good, just blind indifference. No evil, no good. Now, I appreciate the honesty, but 
But that worldview is so dark and empty. Or consider the, the thoughts of Sam Harris. He said this, that his worldview does not offer purpose and meaning. Life is just life. You live it and you die. You try to make the world, or at least your little sphere, a little better than you found it, but that is all. And he said, point, point blank, don't look for the materialistic worldview, the one that's based on facts and reasons, the one that's based on common sense to give you motivation to get up in the morning or to be kind or to do what is right. His worldview cannot do it, he says. I say that those are some of the more popular philosophies of the world today. And it's into those dark philosophies that Christ calls us to be lights, to shine truth and give answers, to give joy and hope. I don't know if you caught it. We often read through these verses. I'm sure you've read them many times, but Jesus calls us to be lights of the world. We know from John's gospel, we might even have that objection ringing in our mind a minute. Wait a minute, Jesus, you're the light of the world, not me. Remember John's gospel, the, the, the introduction, it was John wrote that it's Christ who came into this dark world as a light. And then he himself calls himself the light of the world. The first time... When the religious leaders bring before him a woman caught in adultery, they want to condemn her. They want Jesus to sentence her to death. They hope that Jesus will uphold the law. They think they've trapped him and therefore lose esteem with people. And Jesus instead shows them that those who have no sin, they alone are in position to end, uh, to end such a life. And Jesus offers her, offers her hope and forgiveness offers her a way to live, not in the darkness of sin, but in the righteousness, uh, the light of righteousness. The second time is the next chapter, chapter 9. It's when Jesus meets a blind man and his disciples ask him, who sinned that this man was born, born blind? The emphasis is on the healing that Jesus can bring to a person. And again, he brings them hope and life to the man. And he calls the man then to live righteously before God. That's the context. That's what we want to scream. I can't be like Jesus. You are. So we need to understand that that is true. We are only lights as we reflect what God has done in us. And so we must first experience his forgiveness and healing in order to be lights. We must know our identity as a child of God. And live by faith. We must walk closely with God. I'm not saying we're lights on our own. That we have all the answers. But instead we reflect what God has poured into us. And in my mind that's the great idea. Jesus is calling us to do that here in this dark world. He calls us like Paul did to the people of the Corinthian church. To share the love of God with the world. Paul wrote, you know, the wise people of the age, of this age, the philosophers, the debaters. They have no answers, Paul wrote. And today, our philosophers have no answers. 
They think we only need more education, more time, if you will, to sit us at the table and drink tea and find ways for peace. But we have plenty of knowledge today. We just don't use it. Our problem is not a lack of knowledge. It's something more fundamental. It's that estrangement from God. And so, therefore, it's really only Christians. It's really only the church that can give any helpful advice. I hope you think that's a boastful claim because it is. It's only the church that can really remedy the problems that we see today. But it's, again, not because of who we are, but instead what Christ has done in our lives There is no light in the world apart from Christian people. Who was it that took care of the sick, the abandoned, those that were outcast? Who was it that built the hospitals or even built the universities? Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago to his band of ordinary people fishermen, tax collectors, and the like. And he said, you and you alone are the light of the world. And he says that to us, Christian, you and you alone are the light of the world. Now, is that not an amazing idea? Christ calls us to be his instruments to bring about change, to proclaim the gospel so that his people will believe. He calls us to share the love of Christ with people so that they may receive forgiveness, to receive healing. He calls us to be light that people around us would understand their purpose really is to love God and to worship him. It's to point people to Jesus, that there's one person who can bring hope in life. For us to remind people that Jesus came specifically to seek and save the lost, to illumine the darkness and to forgive sins. But Jesus' work was not just to pardon our sins, but to make us new men and women. And that's what he does. He transforms us, gives us a new life, a life that loves the light and hates the darkness, a life that loves God and wants to humbly walk with him. Again, in stressing that we are to be lights of the world, I'm not saying that the regeneration of people around us is something that we do. We recognize that that it's completely the sovereignty of God to bring grace into somebody's life. We can't do it. But it's our responsibility to live out the faith that he has poured into us to shine for Jesus so that others will see his salvation expressed in the reality of our daily lives. This is the point I think Jesus is making. We have the responsibility to show the Christ the excuse me, to show the Christ-like life of light to those around us. We cannot hide it under the cover and say, I know Jesus, but I'm not going to tell anybody else. And I'm not going to live like 
uniquely. I'm going to live like everybody else and nobody can, can know. We must be wanting to shine the light of Jesus into the world around us. I think we can do this positively by living in a positively different way. There are many ways that I could try to, to give a, as a list of things, ideas to do, but just let me give you a, a couple. First is that we live with hope. The country in which I live is cold, not just temperature-wise, but culturally, society-wise. There's a pessimism. There's, there's a mentality that no matter what the most difficult things the world can give to us, we will grit our teeth and bear through it and, and live. But there's no hope. And so as Christians, what I challenge my church is we need to live be, look beyond the circumstances and still find hope and joy in knowing God that despite what has happened to us, we can have this peace. It's not that we're constantly happy, but we focus on good, what is good and lovely. We find reasons to be thankful every day. Second, I would suggest we can positively express that difference with our words. Society is getting uglier, louder, ruder with its words and how people talk to each other. And we should be different. We should be using words that are kind and uplifting. I remember hearing the story of a fellow missionary seeing an old babushka, grandmother, sweeping the leaves in a park. And he decided to just go up to her and say, thank you for what you're doing. You're making the park more beautiful that my kids can go run and play and enjoy it. And she did what a typical babushka will do. She sort of girded up her skirt and then you notice she was sweeping with a little bit more vigor. She also said, you know, nobody has ever thanked me for the job I do. So how do you talk at home with your spouse or your children? What words do you use? Have you ever just expressed thankfulness, appreciation? Have you ever just wished somebody, blessed them with hope you have a great day. Third, I think we can live this out with our actions. There was a movement a number of years ago that said we should uh, practice random, or yeah, we should practice random acts of kindness. I don't like that word random. I think it should be instead we should practice intentional acts of kindness. This was driven home to me just this past winter. I was coming home. The streets were full of snow. Um, and to get to my apartment building, there's a street in which cars park on one side of the street. And the, the rules of the, of the roadway is the first one there has the right of way. So I got there first, but the guy coming forward in front of me was a big truck. And there's another rule. The bigger you are, the, the, you have the right of way. So I said, okay, I need to get out of the way. So I tried to get out of the way, get over 
to the side and allow him to pass, but there was a snowbank there. He couldn't get by. He's like, oh, now, what do I do? All right, let me see if I can just gun it and get through the snowbank and get onto pavement. Of course, I got stuck. He passes. Everybody passes me. I get out. I'm looking at the situation going, oh, man. And a guy comes up to me and says, are you stuck? And I said, yes. He says, I have nowhere in particular to go. Let me help you. And let me tell you, that just stung me because I thought I would never be able to say that. I have nowhere to go. Let me help you. I'm running here, there, busy. I don't make time just to do good. So when is the last time you have gone out of your way just to be kind for somebody, planned a random act of kindness, do something special for someone just because? One last statement on this passage. Hopefully we've seen that we are to be salt and light. We've explored a little bit of how to do so, but now we must see that it must be done in the right way. Jesus said, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your heavenly Father. The key phrase there, I think, is that is the phrase, so that. In other words, there's supposed to be a complete absence of pride, of doing things for us to be noticed. Now, if you're honest, I think that's a little difficult to put into practice, is it not? We live in such a narcissistic age in which we want everything that we do to be known and then for people to comment, oh, wow, what a kind person you are. And Christ says, no, we do everything so that our heavenly Father would receive all the glory. So we're to live and speak in such a way that people see the power of God in our lives, but they don't see us, they see Christ. Self has to be forgotten. Self is to be absent. Self must be crushed. And the whole purpose is that God would be glorified. So our whole being, our hearts, and our minds, our lips, and our actions, they're all to glorify God. And that's what we desire, that God would be glorified. Is that why you live the way you do? Why you show up on church every Sunday? Why you live in such ways that God would be glorified? May God use us to bring glory to himself. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, you give us such a wonderful blessing in the gospel. It's mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, blessing upon blessing, love that fills us. We ask God that you would help us to be salt and light in our the homes in which we live, the workplaces in which we work, our community. Help us to live that you would be glorified. Strengthen our faith, encourage us to be faithful to you. 
And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you stand with me, take your hymnal. Assume the words will be on the screen behind me. But let us sing our closing hymn of response. Jesus calls us, hymn number 591. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us in our meal coming up now. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do... Um, provide all our needs, that you watch over us and protect us, that you give us what we need each day. We thank you for this time of fellowship that we will have, this food that we will have. We ask, God, that you would strengthen our bodies, that we may do your will, that as we sit around the table and talk, that you would encourage our faith, that we may go forth and do the good works that you have for us. Be with us even in this meal, that we may know you are with us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.